everybody, the con artists here. We're here to talk about our rolling review choice for spring of 2022, your boy Kongming. Um, so all of us are here, all four of us are here. So there's me, Sue, there's Scott. Hello. There's Dan. Hey there. And there's Brendan. Hello. Go team. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, Scott, do you want to tell the audience what this show is about? Yeah, sure. So uh, sort of a, a pretty unique premise. Uh, so you've got Kong Ming is the, the name of a, like a third century Chinese general from like the Romance of the Three Kingdoms period. And he effectively gets like reverse isekai or like telepathy. Like, you know, he's on his deathbed. He gets reincarnated in present day Japan of all places. And then uh, through various means decides to put his, his strategic and tactical talents to use getting a local singer to become very popular. That's uh, the girl Eiko. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, some humor about the Three Kingdoms period, some, like, history lesson about the time period and the strategies being used, uh, and quite a bit of good music and, like, you know, some drama between characters. So that's kind of the, the general setup there. And in an absolute shock, Kongming is reincarnated as himself, an adult man, and not as, like, a girl with large... Like a large chest, like poor, you know, Nobunaga gets all the dang time. Oh, Yagyu Jibei. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Just like his actual adult self. Like, I guess, you know, in his prime, obviously not in his deathbed. But... And with all of his clothes, which makes everyone else very, like, alternatively really, like, impressed by his cosplay or just very confused as to what this weirdo is wearing. That's true. He's sort of, I guess, as a historical figure, known for having like a fan made of crane feathers, which he just has everywhere all the time. I greatly enjoyed his um his jumpsuit that he has to wear <laughs> in the one episode he's at the laundromat and meets Kabe <laughs> and like then he just like whips that thing out of the dryer and puts it on and I was like, Okay, that's hilarious. <laughs> like you in the jumpsuit, solid. Yeah, like he found a jumpsuit in like the colors of his normal clothes is pretty good. <laughs> and he also also he also like sort of really enjoys putting on different like extremely fanciful glasses. Like oh my sunglasses. gosh, yes, everything about those glasses. Bunch of like star shaped ones and like LED ones with like writing that scrolls across it. It is it is a statement. Yes, big statement. <laughs> it's very good. We use the hip kids term. It's a mood. That's what it is, <laughs> oh, guys. It's go. a mood. Um, so this this actually marked a really interesting territory for us as a group because we've never done a show that is predominantly comedy. And I think, I mean, it does get a little bit more dramatic towards the latter half, especially when Eiko comes in contact with Nanami. But I think, you know, comedy was a very central element to this whole thing. So that was that was kind of unique. So I I really uh, I really liked it. I think when it landed, it landed. I did you know laugh to myself quite a few times, and I did, I thought it was fun. Yeah, same here. Yeah, it was definitely a fun show. Go ahead, Dan. No, absolutely. I think uh, it was it was a very nice change of pace for us. You know, something that's not not just like lighthearted, but actively trying to be funny and generally succeeds at it. Um, anime comedy, you know, I've said this before for me, at least is always very hit or miss because depending on, you know, what kind of cultural touchstones you're dealing with or just the type of humor involved, it can be, you know, more or less, it can land more or less well. Um, 
it's super subjective, so this varies for everyone. But uh, this one overall, I felt like did a did a really good job. You don't really need to know much about Kong Ming or the Three Kingdoms period or anything like that. I mean, the more you know, I'm sure that there's you know more little jokes and asides that you can get. But almost everyone else in the actual show has no idea who he is or only like a passing understanding of who this character is. So he. Uh, so so often it gets explained either by like narration or by him or someone else like or by the bar manager. The, oh, yes, he is the best only one side character. He's the only one who like totally knows what this is about and even he doesn't believe initially that this is, you know, the real Kong Ming come from the past to help a frigging like bar singer rise to, you know, the heights of popularity and in some way his long-term plan is to you know, ensure world peace through music. Right, which is great strategy. And also, yeah, like bartender guy, best side character for me, at least. He's phenomenal. Yeah, he's just, he's so cute. He's like best dad combined with best side character combined with like just best guy, <laughs> like mm. best wingman. Um, yeah, so very, very solid in all those elements. Uh, so I think this was a PA work show. Yeah. I think and it, so. It, Looks, well, that sounds right. looks phenomenal. It looks phenomenal. Just, it really just, does. Oh my gosh, just top-notch animation. I think we have to start with that incredible theme song. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. That theme song is bananas. Like it's really good and I love the music. And then like the visuals are just like what's the show about? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a it's like a rap music video combined with three kingdoms energy and all kinds of other nonsense all set to like a ddr Eurobeat song it is i'd like a ddr Eurobeat of chitty chitty bang bang yeah kind of <laughs> it is it is bananas like like all of this show it really sets the stage for you yeah if nothing else you absolutely should check out that opener i also think the ender like the closer is fantastic yeah it's absolutely a, great song. Oh, yeah. a lot of effort the cute little it. chibis like running around at the bar um that's true that's actually apparent like that is like an established song that already exists that they like kind of had people re-sing for this i guess but you know it's it's very appropriate and yeah the chibis are great and they change according to what's going on in the plot yeah. which is always a nice touch yeah i caught i caught that in mine i was like brendan is proud of me somewhere in a you know in the corner <laughs> Even though you're right here. Yay. <laughs> you were going to say something, Brennan, I thought. Oh, no, basically just that. Yeah. The, you know, we all love the, we all love updating ending theme credits. It's always, it's always good times. But uh, yeah, just to sort of run through a little bit of the, a little bit of the plot to kind of give you a bit more context briefly. Um, after uh, Kong Ming, you know, arrives and sort of, accidentally barges his way into this young singer Eiko's life, uh, he starts to, you know, sort of use his traditional strategies. Um, basically, he wrote a series of stratagems. I can't remember. It's like it's like a hundred of them or something, or was it no, it's 33, I think, something along those lines. There's a very it's a it's a larger number than you expect. Um, which is basically a it's similar to the art of war, but it's like more like a bulleted list of like strategies and logistics and other things you need in order to, you know, understand the enemy, understand how to win and, you know, how you can uh, succeed on the battlefield. He applies these, of course, to like the club dance scene and 
like park <laughs> concerts and other stuff uh, with very to great effect, of course, to great, to great effect, heavy, heavy use of fog machines, confuse your enemies, by which I mean, you know, other bands and the gormless patrons who are like floating between different dance floors. But uh, we'll get it. We'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, so he uses this to try and, you know, push her into popularity because she's, you know, she's got passion and talent, but hasn't really figured out what, what her, you know, what her song, what her tune is. Uh, and so he wants to help her, you know, reach her true potential and make sure that, you know, other people get to see her. Along the way, she kind of accidentally becomes friends with a, uh, with another young woman who uh, is secretly a member of another up-and-coming band that's, like, way more heavily produced and run by this, like, really ruthless manager. And they're all trying to... With deep pockets. With very deep pockets. They throw money at all of their problems. And, uh... So she kind of becomes friends with this with this girl and they, you know, they form a bond over their shared love of similar music and performing and everything. And uh, eventually it kind of comes to this head where they're trying to compete to get like a certain amount of likes on social media in order to be let into a particular like big summer festival. Yeah, it doesn't actually reach the summer festival by the end of it, but it's sort of like this is this is the beginning of her journey into true stardom. Uh, whether or not it's yeah. going to continue after that, we'll see. But um, yeah, it's certainly all set up to continue if they want it to. Let's put it that 100%. way. One hundred percent. It's it's a satisfying story in and of itself, but it would be really neat to see if it does actually continue for another season. I can definitely see that working out. But uh, yeah, like so, the real like the the charm of this, in addition to just the characters all being like really really fun to watch, is you know the the, the background of it is all Kong Ming using these you know, these elaborate ruses and strategies to uh, somehow, like, corral people into seeing her concerts. And, like, the ways in which he does this are, you know, it's, like, <laughs> ranging from, like, faking audio issues so that they can, like, get the jump on another band or, like, pretending, you know, dressing up a bunch of trucks to pretend that they are a different band so that when that other band shows up, everyone at the audience is already listening. Everyone in the audience is already listening to them. And of course, perhaps like my favorite one, like place floor decorations, fog machines and lightings that no one can escape the, t like the bathroom. Absolutely <laughs> the best one. Yeah. And it was right. That was like right in the beginning. He's like, I've created this elaborate maze and then confuse the audience with fog so that all roads lead to the restrooms mm -hmm. and you can never escape this floor. I mean, yeah, that's brilliant. Actually, that's going to tie into something um, th that that I want to talk about in addition to what Dan is saying about like the plot and all the characters being a lot of fun. The show like throws all traditional isekai stuff clean out the window. Like day one, eight o'clock, Kong Ming comes, he meets Eiko. And, you know, he's like, OMG, what is a cell phone, right? And you're like, oh boy, I'm prepared now for there to be, like, hilarity as Kong Ming has no idea, like, how modern technology works, right? Absolutely not. By episode two, like, he's able to use LED Christmas trees and fog machines. He very rapidly progresses to understanding social media, PowerPoint, Pretty much any piece of technology he needs, he already understands how to use. And like the show knows it doesn't want to waste any of your time with that. He's he's on top of it. There's like a super brief montage of him asking Ego like what all of these things are. And then after that, it's like, no, we just assume that he's caught himself up. It's like, that isn't important. It's just, you know, the humor is in him 
you know, using his, you know, his wiles and his, you know, kind of oddly archaic, but still very noble values to, uh, you know, to win, to win the day by being sneaky and, you know, a little bit underhanded, but never mean or cruel. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's definitely another important point. I feel like there's always a good natured to whatever Kongming is doing, right? Like, even when he, say, knocks out that rival band with the, you know, where he fakes the audio issues, right? And he ends up giving that rival band's lead singer this special concoction that helps his throat because he has, you know, some sort of strep throat issue and just sends them on their way. It's like he defeats them, but he he's never really vicious about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which is pretty impressive because you know those stratagems are written for war, right? Yeah. Defeating the enemy. Yeah, he kind of like ruminates on this a couple times where he's like, yeah, back in the day, like those those that rival band, if they were like a rival war party, like their heads would be on pikes to make an example of them. But mm-hmm. I want to try a different route here in the future, like a more peaceful route. It's like, well, good. I'm taking advantage of living in a gentler time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a later plot point that he actually does like craft an emergency scenario where he like destroys his enemy from within, but it becomes not necessary. And he's very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're very right. Like I, like I said, it just sort of only occurred to me recently looking back on all of it that, yeah, the show as a whole is very, very gentle. Like there's the, there's the whole rival reveal at one point where um, the, girl Nanami that uh, Ego has become friends with sort of shows that she is you know she is the lead singer of this other band Azalea and while it's pretty obvious from the moment you meet her just by looking at her and the show actually calls this out later on it's like oh yeah we knew it was her like you can look it up on the internet it's not hard to find <laughs> like even though like all of the singers in that uh, in that band wear these masks and these like crazy costumes and everything it's like no 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 it's pretty much an open secret but yeah. uh, I mean how else would uh, Kong Ming himself had like found her on reconnaissance <laughs> yeah i mean she gets name dropped yeah right? like in the powerpoint mm-hmm. he gives about ultimate world peace through music he's like <laughs> the lead singer is kuon nanami and then as soon as you meet this girl on the street named nanami like come on put two it and really two seems together, like right? eiko's the only one who hasn't put two and two together she's yeah, not poor eiko she's not she's not she's not dumb or anything she's just you know she's just really excited to meet someone else who really enjoys the same music that she does and so she kind of overlooks the fact that oh this person happens to share the exact same name as like the right the, the leader of the rival band but uh but yeah like when she sort of shows it off you know it's a sad moment because they both really love music and she's you know nanami is in this situation where the band is being you know guided by this really ruthless manager that she doesn't like, none of them like and is really like you know pushing them to do you know type a kind of music they don't enjoy he's pushing like these really like obnoxious costumes and gimmicks and such onto them. And like Scott pointed out, just throwing money at the problem, you know, doing giveaways or like, you know, renting out the biggest spaces or whatever it might be in order to promote them rather than letting their music speak for themselves. And while their music is certainly good and very, I really have to say just a small segue that I really appreciated that this was not the type of music that you typically associate with musical anime. Now, mm, true. because, you you know, most of us think it's like, oh, it's going to be like really, it's going to be really poppy. It's going to be like idol music type stuff. It's that sort of thing. In this case, it is like Echo does. They both sing some of that, but like 
Azalea does like this more like symphonic speed metal kind of thing. And Aiko is more into like rhythm and blues inspired stuff, more, you know, poppy for sure, but more in a more in an older, more traditional sense, I guess, rather than like what you again, what you expect from like anime opening theme song type uh, type music. So I really mm. appreciated that. It's like, while the the music itself is, you know, again, super subjective, I really enjoyed that they, they picked something very different from what you might typically expect from sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, from sort of a battle of the bands type thing. That and the fact True. that they heavily feature uh, rap artists uh, in, the, uh, in the proceedings. I don't know if any of you want to talk about them because that is a whole other side story. Oh yeah, I guess before we we move on to to Kabataijin and the amazingly named uh, you know Kung Fu there, Sekitoba Kung Fu. Uh, like the, I agree with you, the music is really good. I enjoyed all of it. My only complaint would be that like at the end of the show, like practically the last two episodes, you get basically three new songs that are all great. Mm-hmm. But for the preceding like ten episodes, there's one song. Mm-hmm. Like and as good as Maria Diesel is at her one song and like them and their various, you know, renditions of it. It would have been nice if there had been more music that they were drawing their inspirations from and singing. Cause after a while I was like, yes, it's the song again. That's an anime we staple know. though. Unfortunately, I feel like just because of what goes into producing music for anime and the amount oh, of sure. time of whatnot, like what was the, what was the song? What was the sh- SDF Macross all over again? Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of examples of this where, you know, there's like they've got the one hit and you just keep thinking it's like, come on, guys, like your discography can be more than one single. Yeah, like uh, uh, Moon Wosagashite. Oh, yeah. Like they only have two or three. I mean, basically Visual Prison and a new song every episode for a new for each character is certainly the exception and not the rule. <laughs> yeah, and I'll I'll just chain off of that with another thing I really liked in relation to the music was that outside of the first woman, I, I can't even remember her name, who was like a throwaway villain, mm-hmm. every, oh, yeah. everybody else was, you know, whatever struggles they had with music or whatnot, they weren't outright villains or anything they were dealing with wasn't something that I think you're used to with, with anime mustache twirling, right? Like, I'm, I'm specifically thinking of... Uh, Azalea, because with with something like Azalea, you would think in a traditional anime show that like all of their um, their fans would be just these like big jerks oh, to Aiko's yeah. fans, and like everyone surrounding Azalea would secretly be a terrible person. But the real, you know, the drama and the conflict is that. A lot of Azalea fans are just normal people who really like the music that's being produced, right? And even though it's this kind of soulless process, a la Carol and Tuesday, right, where it's made in a a factory somewhere and then imprinted on these poor girls, there's a whole host of people, very normal, very nice people, who like this music. And even their producer, right, has his own reasons for doing this to them and, and attacking the music industry this way, right? And it's, it's almost this quiet reflection, so not nearly as loud of a scream as Carol and Tuesday, but this quiet reflection on the music industry and what it's become and what it takes and kind of the ugly side of it, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really nice that it their, their arch rival and, and many of their rivals along the way are not 
just these classic anime villains. Yeah. That's true. Everyone essentially gets not exactly redeemed, but like, like either they're not villains at all or their motivations were for a realistic reason. Yeah. They're, they're antagonists, but not villains. And it's really nice to see that. Like, even even the most like scummy thing that someone pulls is basically just giving someone a really bad spot in a club where they know they're not going to get a lot of attention like it's it's like industry it's like it's like industry dirty pool but it's not you know nothing about this is like nobody's breaking anyone's equipment nobody's like nobody's committing crimes to take out their uh <laughs> right precisely true. it's all just like Things that I think a lot of music musicians probably have to do in the industry, period, right? Like, oh man, we got to run a bunch of shows back to back to back. Like going back to that that group, the, the all-male group that they compete with at that Arts Fest. Like that guy uses auto-tune, right, to help because he has those throat problems, but he still wants to play in the music industry, right? And it's like auto-tune exists for a reason right i mean it's overused and and overproduced nowadays but there are reasons behind why you would use auto-tune mm -hmm. as well right like actual industry reasons so it's it was just this interesting mix of kongming you know not wanting to put his enemies heads on pikes and everyone else in the show you know just really trying to work their way through the music industry period mm. Yeah. So I think that leads us to what arguably, at least for me, was one of my favorite parts of the show. And that is the not not necessarily the character of, but the inclusion of the uh, the rapper um, Kabe Taijin and his entire arc. At first, when he's introduced, it's kind of a, I think it's one of the weaker moments of the show because they keep going. I agree. That was that was the weakest episode. Yeah, I know I got that one and I complained quite a bit. I was like, <laughs> your backstory is not that complicated that we that need to, to keep be told three times. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we don't need to have this repeated constantly. Basically, he, you know, he worked his way up from a really young age and really quickly to becoming sort of like this underground, you know, rap battle sensation. Like the battles are what made him famous. He's very, you know, he's very good at freestyle and really, you know, real, really quick thinking and witty when it comes to when it comes to his rhymes. But he sort of he made it to the top. He beat like one of these really established, really famous uh, rappers and then collapsed on stage and has basically like a nervous ulcer eating away at him and causing, you know, causing him like constant pain whenever he even thinks about trying to rap again. And it's, you know, pretty much destroyed his, destroyed his confidence in his career. And after the first episode of sort of introducing that, uh, Kang Ming basically challenges him to a follow-up rap battle. Ed says, is like, if it's like, if I can beat you, then I want you to, you know, work with Aiko to help, uh, you know, add variety and dynamicism to her music. And, you know, eventually, like, sort of not tricks, but sort of manipulates him into agreeing to this and then throws down with the most absurd Three Kingdoms-based rap battle you will probably have ever <laughs> seen put to film. <laughs> the, the most absurd and possibly only one of these. But very impressive. Like that episode, like that's where the, you know, they might not have had as many music songs for Aiko to sing, but they clearly put a lot of work into the raps, which there are several of throughout the show. 
Yeah, that one in particular is fantastic because I think it was Dan that I think that was your episode. Yeah. Like eventually it starts off as like classic rap battle and then dissolves into like Kabataijin pulling from you know, his his street roots rapping with his friends under a bridge to Kongming almost reciting poetry, mm. basically. So it's it's like splitting and you get these very like distinct personalities out of their, their rap. And it was a very, very strong episode. Um, actually, something I just realized, kind of thinking about it here on the cast with you guys, the, the show's two most prominent uh, influences, right, are... Maria Diesel, who I believe it's mentioned that she is a jazz artist, and then rap. And both of these are predominantly black music types. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they're, they're music that is, is... Black people have, you know, had a hand in creating, or, or were the creators of. Um, so... I think that's really neat that that was the inspiration and like Sekitoba Kung Fu, I, I believe is a black character and Maria Diesel is not white. So yeah. that was pretty cool too. Um, just to get that, that little bit of diversity influence and, you know, have some of these, these more diverse characters in there. So that's, that's kind of a, a neat thing. It is true. Like modern, modern anime feels less diverse than it's ever been. So it's, it's nice. It's a nice touch. Yeah. Especially, you know, when it comes to music, I I do find that anime in general has, you know, it has a very long history and some of the most, some of the most well-loved shows from like the early 2000s and such especially drew a lot of inspiration from uh, that type of music, from jazz, from blues, from, you know, from rap as well. I mean, look at, uh, you know, obviously these, these come as the first examples, but, you know, Cowboy Bebop and, uh, Samurai Shamblu are just, you know, two examples of it. And I feel like we have definitely lost out on a lot of that more recently. So it's really cool to see some of those more unexpected influences making their way back and showing that um, in, especially in uh, Eiko and uh, Kabataijin's case, their music is international. It's going to, or at least, you know, assuming that they continue on their trajectory it's not just like, oh, I want to be big in Japan. It's like, this could be worldwide. They've got the, you know, they've got the, uh, the sort of this global influence, uh, you know, that they can, that they could reach. And I sincerely hope that they explore that in a future season. Hmm. Speaking yeah. of global influence, the sheer amount of English in these songs was mind blowing. <laughs> like, I could not believe it. How how much English and how much pretty good English? Pretty good English. Like I was it's impressed. Not perfect, but it's it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like other than a little bit of impressed. odd grammar, it's very you know like the the performance of it and the you know the speaking of it is really actually quite good. Also, I don't know if '96 Neko was popular before because I'm not like very hip with the J-pop <laughs> artists, but. I hope she's popular now because Aiko has a beautiful singing voice. Oh yeah, mm. yeah, she does a great job. Like you, you definitely believe that she's like a diamond in the rough mm-hmm. that like just needs some extra backing to to move up. You know, hundred mm. percent. I mean, so we've gone on quite a bit about what we really enjoyed about this show. Um, 
And I don't know, does anyone have anything else that they wanted to touch on before we get to like the extremely minor criticisms I think any of us have? Yeah, my super last point, Dan, is that uh, I complimented this many times in my late episodes, was that both Kabutaijin and Eiko have parts in their own success. I'm glad that the entire show mm. wasn't just Kong Ming, like, fishing up some scheme in the back and then being like, surprise, like, I fixed all your problems. <laughs> like, Eiko really, you know, she has to write her own song at the end. She's got to find her own voice. Like, he gives her little clues and hints and things that help, but she has to figure it out herself. Yeah. Uh, same thing with Kabataijin. He has to go back to his roots and, and figure out what makes rap so important to him and, and find his own voice. You know, both of them are discovering themselves and they do the work that it takes. Um, and, and that was really nice oh, for, yeah. for me. And the super duper last item is, I don't know if those little anecdotes they tell in the beginning of each episode are true or not, having, you know, very little knowledge of anything Three Kingdoms related. But I did think it was really neat that they took the time, if those anecdotes are real, to go find little stories that tied into the theme of the episode. Mm, it's such a yeah. nice little touch, but it, it must have taken so much research to do, right? It's something that looks simple to you, the viewer, but that takes a lot of effort to think on that level. Yeah. I mean, the Three Kingdoms period is one of those things where, again, I am no, I don't claim to be any sort of an expert uh, or even passingly familiar with it, but my understanding from just looking into it a bit while watching the show is that a lot of it is uh, that kind of, it, it's quasi-mythical in some ways, you know, like the, the, the myth-making and the legends of that time have sort of blended into the history, and while the actual history may be somewhat more, you know, basic and straightforward than a lot of the myths, there's still valuable lessons to be taught there. And they're, you know, they're, they have a very strong cultural history and it's really cool to see that being brought in, as you said, sort of like a, Hey, in this other context, this is the lesson or the theme of the episode. Enjoy. And I feel like more shows could sort of benefit from that. The, the sort of a setting up expectations like, it's good to be surprised, but it's also nice to at least have an idea of what you're getting into. Mm. As far as, like, criticisms go, really, again, there's almost nothing. We, you know, we talked a little bit about, like, the introduction of Kabataijin was a little bit weak just because it felt kind of repetitive, and it didn't feel like they had quite enough material for an entire episode worth of it. But, you know, I guess they, they had to pace it out in such a way in order to get up to their full number of episodes. Um, and the only other thing was, like you said, having a limited, sort of a limited vocabulary of songs at the beginning. Um, besides that, I don't know, like. Yeah, those was, those were kind of my two complaints. I don't really know if I have a, a third one. From, from a larger pacing perspective, it almost feels like Kabataijin's like, like position in this like 12 episode brick of anime like isn't entirely justified just by how little he does at the end of it which he, yeah, like, he, he does some stuff but it's clearly he's he's more like he was set up to do more like later in the manga which i you know i do hope that we get to cover more of his collaboration with eiko because he only like sort of half does it at one point when they're like uh like practicing backstage or whatever and that 
seems like it has the potential for some quality music. Agreed. I think maybe just a not quite fully re- realizing the potential that they have there. So hopefully they rectify that in the future. But I, yeah, I, I'll I'll agree with that. He for the amount mm. of, for the amount of uh, time they put into him, it feels like his impact at the end was kind of minimal. Yeah, right. His impact at the end was basically like a diss track that almost backfired. <laughs> it was like, all right, that's it. Uh, all right. <laughs> especially because, you know, Eiko wrote her own song and you thought that, oh, maybe like, you know, this is a collaboration between them. Her song is going to incorporate his, you know, is going to incorporate his freestyle or something. And no, it really doesn't. It's a beautiful song. It's excellent. No, you know, no, no shade on that at all. But the fact that it didn't incorporate that feels like the amount of effort they went to to get Kabataijin in was not wasted, but like maybe not quite on balance worth what you uh, what you paid for, so to speak. Um, I think the only other thing I have, and again, super subjective here, I feel like the way they handled the manager of Azalea at the very end was a little too forgiving. Like, he's pretty ruthless like he's the closest thing to a real villain that the show has because not only is you know is azalea the rival of Aiko and you know their success kind of implies her not succeeding it's he is you know he is very much about you know money will solve all of our problems you need to get the biggest audiences possible i don't care what kind of music you like to play this is the kind of music you play get in these skimpy costumes perform as i tell you and do not question me and though they do sort of give a reason for all of that, it seems very flimsy at the end. And he is forgiven way too easily for being such an absolute jerk. Like, I get that you guys might want to give him another chance, but just like being like, hey, manager, continue to work with us. Just be nicer to us seems like a pretty poor outcome for someone who has deliberately like made you miserable seemingly to line his own pockets and that of his recording company for quite some time it just it and them and them yes yeah, so not that they're not being paid or anything but they're obviously miserable yeah and i think there there was that one moment in my episode i there was no way for me to weave it in but uh he he said like he, Azalea is, is tuning their instruments and there's that oh, yeah. stage guy who's like, what are, what are they tuning the instruments for? We're just going to play a backtrack and they're going to dance over it. And the guy hits it like the, the producer hits him with his cane and is like, listen, they're still musicians and they have personal pride. So you shut your mouth and then walks off. And I, I think that was the show's little nod to the fact that He's clearly a jaded musician who has been through this industry and now understands what it takes. But I, I agree with Dan that that wasn't quite enough. Mm. I mean, they, they did drop that hint, but I think we needed a little more understanding of, of his jaded yeah. suffering and, you know, how we got here. And I, I do think that if there was any quote unquote casualty of war in this show, it, it should have been him. Like Nanami and company should have walked away and been like, we understand why you're like this and why the industry has chewed you up and then spit you out like this, but we need to go a different way and yeah. we need to, to be with somebody who's going to respect the kind of music we want to make. And I think that would have, you know, solidified the tragedy of it you get why he is the way he is but it's not so easily washed over uh based on all that difficulty he put them through 
for sure. And I mean, he's also like, you know, he's big man record producer. He's not going like one of his bands like going away is not going to ruin him. He'd be fine. He'd be able to he'd be able to pick himself up and find someone else to work with. It's not like, you know, you have to feel bad for him because, you know, this was his last big shot or something as far as the show implies anyway. So I I just feel like they were, in my estimation, way too forgiving of all of his nonsense. And while he was not the absolute worst, he was still a really big jerk and they needed to have more respect for themselves and understand that they are, you know, they are worth more than he is giving than he is giving them artistically and professionally, if not monetarily. But again, super minor criticism. It's just like the I, I feel like that ending could have been that part of the ending could have been handled a little better. Outside of that, we already hit on the other stuff. And unless you guys have anything else to you know to nitpick, it's all really, really minor stuff. Uh, the show overall is just you know, it's just it's just great. Ton of fun, really, you know, mm. surprisingly soulful and genuinely funny. I guess I have one last one. I'll be the the grouch. I did feel like because of how dramatic everything was with meeting Nanami and then having Nanami be the super rival at the end, I felt like there should have been a little more struggle on Kang Ming's part. A lot of his like prophetic notions of where characters are going to be and what they're going to do and knowing every single move as it's laid out, like someone handed him the plot of the script, (laughs) uh, or sorry, the script of the plot. Um, It felt a little too much towards the end. Like I really felt stretched in that last sequence where like they somehow are able to rent a stage truck. They know the exact location Azalea is going to do their under wrap secret concert. And it just felt too clean. Like Kang Ming just knows everything all the time forever. And because the comedy had died down in that latter sequence of episodes, because, you know, Nanami was such an important character, you were left with just a base layer of drama and I think they needed to try a little harder for for that dramatic finale. Like, I think Kang Ming should have had to struggle a little bit. The answer should not have been just, like, handed to him, and he knows where everything is going to happen. So I felt a little let down by that. Yeah. Yeah, it was almost like they, they showed that he didn't know everything, but only because he had another bonus stratagem he didn't have to employ. Mm-hmm. So, like... He's human, sure, but it's like it's almost like he had extra he could have used rather than the other way around. So yeah, he certainly never struggled. Yeah. Which, uh, I mean, maybe there's more plans for that in some second season, but if you'd feel like at the finale, I agree, he should have, there should have been at least one move by the other producer guy that like made him sweat. Yeah. He's never on the back foot. And I think I mentioned this in one of my reviews in the earlier episodes that it feels like that would have been more dramatically appropriate towards the end. But again, that's not really the focus of the show that his 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 stratagems and his uh, his all of his shenanigans are really just the setup. They are the wrapping around the core of the music and, you know, Ego's journey and whatnot. And I feel like that is still the right way of handling things. But I agree. I could have. I could have stood for him to have to be more reactive, at least in one instance. Yeah, just for that, I'll, mm. I'll just stand behind that element of fighting Azalea had to have a little more 
fight to it. So, but other than that, I loved the show. I loved the music. Mm. I think it's really great. I want more seasons of this. The show looks beautiful the whole way through. Like our our homegirls, Aiko and Anami, they are never objectified. Like they're in fact they're always in like giant jackets and sweatpants. Well, except when hats, Anami is on stage as part of which Azalea, was used for that, dramatic effect. Yeah, and that but that was deliberate. It was you know it was yeah. meant to be. But yeah, the rest of the time they're all just you know they're dressed in what looks like really comfortable clothing, and it's nice to see that too. Yeah. Yeah. But no, all in all, yeah, super fun show, like really caught me by surprise. I was expecting it to be, you know, kind of like, ah, this is cute. And it turned out to be way more engaging than pretty much anything else I watched this season. Yeah, it's really top notch. We got we got we got lucky. Yeah. Or we picked well. Your boy, your boy delivered. He did. 100 <laughs> percent. All right, y'all. Well. It has been great talking about this. Really fun to see another show that uh, definitely goes in our recommendations uh, list. And uh, hopefully, yeah, there'll be a second season sometime in the future that we'll get a chance to talk about. Alrighty, righty. Well, catch you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone.